Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, William the Lion. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI. You made yourself laugh. I did. (laughs) It's like I was on the end of the phone. Hello. (laughs) Anyway. From the off, that's sounding pretty promising, isn't it? Very. I mean, because the Scottish symbol is a lion on his hind legs, isn't Mm. it? Oh. Oh. Last time we had Malcolm the Maiden. Yeah. William the Lion's got a bit more of a ring to it. Yeah. They've got a new PR person in perhaps <laughs> <with> this one. <laughs> anyway, a quick bit of backgroundy stuff before we get on to uh, William. Uh, key one to go back to is his grandfather, David I. David I had a very successful reign. He took advantage of the anarchy in England, mm-hmm. where we had that civil war between Stephen and Matilda. And uh, he actually occupied Northumbria and Cumbria. So Northern England effectively went to Scotland. However, the death of David's only son, Prince Henry, meant that he had to pass the throne onto his 12-year-old grandson, Malcolm IV. Yeah. Who was, of course, Malcolm the Maiden. Now, Malcolm did a little bit better than perhaps we might have expected, um, but he was forced to give back all of the territory that David had gained back to England. Oh, yeah. I didn't mind that, though. Is that right? Because I thought he was never going to keep it anyway. And because it was Henry II who then oh. reunited England, was much more powerful than mm. Henry I even had been. Yeah. Um, however, he did put down uh, rebellions from the rival Macheth family, and these were the descendants of Alexander I, mm-hmm. and the McWilliams, who were the descendants of Duncan II. Okay. So he's still got some lingering dynastic squabbles. But that's going dealt on. with. Well, he has dealt with it. That's mm. not to say that they are permanently dealt okay. with. Um, and he also won a bit of control over the territory of Galloway in southwest Scotland, which formerly had been kind of independent, but Malcolm was able to right. bring it a bit more within the Scottish sphere of influence. Than what about the before. other place, Murray? Murray oh. is both technically now properly within Scotland, and yet at the same time, you can never trust a Murray uh. man. <laughs> okay. Now, let's get on to William. He's the son of Henry, the Earl of Huntingdon, so the son of David I, and uh, Ada de Warren, so an Anglo-Norman lady. And he's the grandson of David and the brother of uh, Malcolm IV that we did last time. Now, he's born roughly 1143, so he's about 22 when he becomes king in mm. 1165. But yeah. what kind of first impression are we going to draw from him? We don't have a contemporary <laughs> portrait, but we do have the Heritage Playing Card Limited artist depiction. Okay, and as usual, Graham has covered these and I never see them. Definitely a sword, definitely a cloak, um, always I'm imagining a big bushy beard, mm. and just a big barrel chest roaring lion. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, okay, well, I was, um, oh, I was correct with the sword, yeah. but he just looks like a crusader knight. He's covered in chainmail. We've got no sign of tartan or even a... Is that a lion on his chest? I think it is a lion. And what colour is the lion? What colour is the background? A red. A red lion on a 
yellow I had difficulty with the colours there <laughs> on a yellow tunic um, which is the um, royal oh, standard yeah. of Scotland yeah of course now would you say there's any extent to which the uh, the artist has been influenced by the depiction that he did of Richard the Lionheart which you will see behind where are we it's the same man. <laughs> it's the same man. It's the same man. <laughs> I mean, it looks like... You know, I couldn't tell whether that was a, a lion on his tunic yeah. or not. I think it's because he's drawn the three panthers that um, Richard, the Lionheart, has, and he's just got his rubber out, and it's, it's smudged it a bit. It is, it is the same man. He's got a slightly different mix-up in terms of where the shield and the helmet are. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the person five minutes later. Yeah. He's been sort of had a shift around. Even, even both the King of Hearts. Oh, good spot. Yeah, great spot. You know, we don't have a contemporary uh, portrait of him, but we do have hints from uh, uh, descriptions of what he looked like. And uh, he's said to have been red-headed, which we can't tell from the card because he's got his chainmail on. Yep. And powerfully built. Mm, a does- bear of a man, according to Neil Oliver. Well, that's definitely what I was hoping. Mm. Now, in terms of his epithet, mm-hmm. um, it's often said to be, as you were pointing out earlier, because of the red line lampant, r- lampant, rampant. Yeah, on his hind legs. Um, actually, that wasn't used until Alexander II. Oh. So it's been kind of a bit misattributed to him. He was actually known um, as William the Lion because of old friend of ours, John of Forden, yeah. who dubbed him the Lion of Justice. Oh. That's so not it, quite as exciting, It doesn't is it? actually refer mm. to his military prowess, rather, right. his, uh, his governance and administration. Oh, you know I love governance and administration. However, in terms of his personality, he's very different from his brother. He's said to have been uh, headstrong, ambitious, a man of the world, a knight, and um, he's, uh, he's always ready for battle, his William. He's always ready to rush headlong into conflict. And his defining purpose in life comes in 1157, during the reign of his brother, when he was 14 years old. Because while Malcolm IV became King of Scotland, Mm. William was made the Earl of Northumberland. So when Henry II came along in 1157 and said, all this English land, I think I'm just going to take it back now, Malcolm acquiesced. William does not seem to have taken this very well, and indeed is incapable of letting it go. It becomes really a life-defining obsession that he wants Northumbria back. And from Henry II is still in power at this time. And Henry II um, is just ten years into his reign. Oh, he's made a terrible, terrible <laughs> lapse of judgment there, hasn't he? <laughs> so William is determined to wrestle back Northumbria from Henry II. Right. Now, as you might expect, the two of them tend to fall out. Henry and William, don't get on. Um, Pretty much as soon as William becomes king, he meets with Henry, accompanies him on uh, campaigns in France, and seems to have been persistently asking for Northumberland to be returned to him. (laughs) Uh, Henry, Henry, not now, God's sake! (laughs) And indeed, Henry refuses. And um, when Henry refused, William then started making overtures to Louis VII of France in 1168, who was Henry II's great rival, the king of France. Henry is a bit fed up with yeah. William. And uh, there was a letter from John of Salisbury to his friend, Thomas Beckett, where he related uh, an example of the extent to which animosity existed between the two. On a certain day when King Henry was at Caen and was eagerly conducting the affair that he had with the King of Scotland, he broke out in insulting language against Richard de Hammers, who seemed to be speaking to some extent in the King of Scotland's favour. And the king, as in Henry, roused to his usual fury, flung his cap from his head, 
put off his belt, threw far from him the mantle and clothes that he had on, removed with his own hands the silken coverlet that was over the couch, and, sitting as it were in a manure heap, began to chew the stalks of straw. The, is this the moment? This is the infamous moment when Henry II properly... Started to eat, eat, like, chew the carpet and go crazy. And it was because of William, or somebody saying something nice about William. That's a, a, a quality. I mean, that is the, the go-to story when people talk about a, a Plantagenet exactly. rage. Isn't <laughs> yes. it? Brilliant. Which, in a strange way, is kind of a compliment for William. Yeah, I mean, it, it also shows the lack of his effectiveness <laughs> of his approach, doesn't it? <laughs> Now, in 1173, um, Henry was under increasing pressure uh, from, basically, his sons. Because he's got this big Angevin empire, and he's got numerous sons. And he is trying to give them each a bit of territory to keep them happy, to give them something to Mm -hmm. rule, to have land. But they always want more, and they're always pecking at him. He had uh, made his youngest son, also called Henry, so known as the young king, the young king Henry. He'd Mm -hmm. made him technically joint king. His youngest son. Yes. No, his oldest son, Henry, in 1170. But he hadn't given him any power. Mm. So the young Henry, Richard, the future Lionheart, Mm. and uh, Geoffrey, allied with Louis VII, the King of France, the Counts of Flanders, Counts of Boulogne, and the Count of Blois, in a grand rebellion against Henry II, all of which was effectively orchestrated and encouraged by Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was Henry's wife, who was also a bit fed up with him. Uh, that's a, a, an, an almighty alliance, but still, you've got to fancy Henry. Well, but there's more to come with this alliance, because the young Henry offers William the Lion north, the uh, northern counties of England mm. in return for William getting involved. So right. basically, if they can defeat Henry II, then the young Henry, when he becomes king, he'll give Northumbria back to William. Uh, he's never, ever going to turn this opportunity down, is he? Well, he he did ask for advice for, from his councillors, and actually many of them apparently advised against it. Oh, Because okay. they thought we shouldn't get mixed up in all of this. Yeah, very sensible advisers. Um, however, William made one last demand of Henry II. He basically said, give me this land back or I'm going to get involved. Henry refuses, so William decides to join the Great Rebellion. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Henry, uh, Henry II starts pr- off pretty well, so as a result, Louis in France is reluctant to renew his attack in mainland France while Henry's still there. Mm. So they need to force Henry to go back to England so that they can take advantage of his absence. Yes. The plan, then, is that William and his ally in the north, Roger de Mowbray, will launch a major invasion of northern England, and um, Philip of Flanders is also planning to launch an invasion from the Channel. Mm. It's, he's surrounded, isn't he? All of this will mean Henry's got to come back or he's at risk of losing England. Mm. So, Henry is persuaded to return to England, and he goes to Canterbury in 1174. Uh-oh. The site where Thomas Beckett, now murdered, yeah. um, is that he has a shrine, he's buried there. So Henry goes to do penance. Um, he walks barefoot, um, wears a woolen shirt, received a flogging from the clergy. Mm and sleeps the night just on the stone in front of Beckett's grave to do atonement for his accidental having him brutally murdered It's a bit crime. Cersei, isn't it? Mm. 
The next day he wakes up to hear the news that William the Lion has been defeated and captured in a small skirmish at Annick. <laughs> wow, so that paid off, didn't it? Exactly. <laughs> Beckett said, you are forgiven. <laughs> yes, exactly. He probably woke up, heard the news and, and put a, a big shiny gold coin in the collection box <laughs> and went out with a skip in his step. Um, English resistance immediately falls away and they all surrender and he returns to France, relieves Rouen and then gets the submission from his sons and the King of France and everybody. Henry has defeated the Great Rebellion. Yeah. And he's very generous in his peace. He imprisons Eleanor of Aquitaine, his wife, for the rest of the reign but otherwise he basically restores everything exactly how it was before the rebellion. But there was one exception and that exception was Scotland. Yeah. In 1175, to secure William's release, because he's been captured in this battle, he has to sign the Treaty of Falaise, which is an incredibly humiliating agreement, which we'll go into more detail later, but basically he, his brother David, his nobles, all have to acknowledge Henry II as, as their sovereign lord. So not doing homage for bits of territory in England, actually just full on the King of Scots is subject to the King of England. Uh, in addition, the Scottish Church has to acknowledge the sovereignty of the Archbishopric of York, which is something that the previous Previ- kings yeah. have been fighting against all this mm. time. In one fell swoop, England is the overlord of the Scots. And this is just Henry taking advantage of of the fact that everyone's come and said, sorry, Dad, sorry, Dad, sorry, Dad, and then William's there going, sorry? <laughs> and he goes, right, exactly. he'll take it all out. He comes back in 1175 to Scotland, but his um, his dominance that he had in Scotland is immediately undermined by being A, captured, and then B, completely humiliated. Mm. In Galloway, um, Uhtred had been ruling Galloway, and he was, you know, sort of fairly loyal to William, but he is murdered, murdered by his brother Gilbrecht, and Gilbrecht offers his allegiance to Henry II. So effectively, he is trying to remove Galloway from Scotland's sphere of influence and putting himself instead in Henry's hands. Right, so he wants to have his own little fiefdom. Yeah, exactly. He wants to be free from William. And William's new lowly status meant that he technically couldn't actually deal with a rebellion without the permission of Henry II. Yeah. So he's at real risk here of losing Galloway and of being completely powerless to do anything about it. Henry sent envoys to negotiate, but apparently they were so appalled at the brutal murder of Uhtred by Gilbrecht, so he was blinded and castrated before being... Nasty. actually finished off, that they actually refused the offer. Oh, OK. So things looking rosier for William. Well, a little bit rosier. So William brings Gilbert to Henry to make peace, and then he has to... Uh, Gilbert has to give his son Duncan as a hostage. But he still remains pretty defiant of William. He's, mm. Galloway is still now kind of a bit of an enemy territory again. Yeah, because presumably, although they didn't break away, they had a go. Yeah. Yeah, nasty. And we also have the McWilliam family causing problems. So these are the descendants of uh, Duncan II. So Donald McWilliam, the grandson of Duncan II, joins forces with the Macheth family, who are the descendants of Alexander I. So we've got two sets of royal mm. rival dynasties, and now join together. Right. So the North uh, is up in arms. William and his brother David fight a campaign in Ross in 1179, but in the 1180s they basically lose all control of Ross and, of course, of Murray. But if there is this rebellion against William, that last one with the McWilliams and the other fellas... Yeah. Wouldn't, now he's under the control of Henry, wouldn't he be able to say to Henry, these these guys are kicking off, can I have some help please? Because the, the guys that are kicking off, hmm. presumably 
haven't signed that that uh, contract of loyalty to Henry. It's Henry's interest to support William now, isn't it? Yeah, except, I mean, on the one hand, they've not really made an alliance as such. It is just purely William having to it's do forced. stuff for Henry. And also, this is the very, very, very north of Scotland. So whereas Galloway is kind of near the border, it's also in terms of sea access near Wales and Ireland. Mm. He doesn't really care about uh, Murray yeah. all the way out there. Okay, yeah, that's Scottish problems. Isn't yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that now has been lost for the moment. Right. However, things do start to look up as the 1180s come to an end. Henry II is once again under pressure from uh, the new French king now, Philip Augustus, and he seems to have been trying to cultivate William's support because actually it would be easier if the Scots were on side and he didn't have to worry about them. Yeah bothering him on that northern border so he stayed out of a dispute william had with the papacy restored to him the huntingdon estates so english bit of english lands why just just to go on a bit just to be nice just right. to be nice now william in this stage is still in his 40 sorry william in this stage is in his 40s but he's still a bachelor um uh, <laughs> big fat use of the bell there what 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 is going on well i mean one of his problems is again he can't marry without henry's permission Okay. So he has to ask if, That's he, all right, though, if he could please get married. Fling a letter down to London? Well, so initially he wanted to marry a lady called Matilda of Saxony, who was Henry's uh, granddaughter. That would have been oh, a very, uh, very prominent marriage, but um, it was rejected by the Pope on grounds of consanguinity. How close were they? Um, close enough that the Pope could do it and Henry could go, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> really, <laughs> yeah. really hoped you'd get that really uh, powerful marriage alliance. How about instead I marry you to Ermengarde de Beaumont? Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who, um, Such an ugly name, I can't help but... William was initially rather disappointed because she was the granddaughter of an Ill illegitimate daughter of Henry I. Oh, that is a terrible match, isn't it? It's not it? quite as good. Um, but Henry sweetens appeal. He pays for a very lavish wedding ceremony and uh, returns some Scottish estates that he'd taken away from William as part of her dowry. And uh, they actually end up having quite a strong uh, relationship. She proves a very effective consort later in the reign. So he went through with it. He, he, had he went through it. Well, he needed a he needed a wife, and he couldn't really say no because Henry decided upon it, and Henry was his man. Oh dear, this is real. That, that whole fillets issue was a real. Yeah. It was a real biggie. In 1185, Gilbrecht of Galloway dies. Good, nasty piece of work. And um, he'd been ravaging the Scottish lands with border raids, so it was about time. Now his son Duncan was still hostage with Henry II in England. Now William has an ally in Galloway, a chap called Roland, and he is the nephew of Gilbrecht, so the son of the Uhtred that Gilbrecht okay, killed. Yeah, yeah. So he is actually there at the time. So while Duncan's still with Henry, down in England, mm. Roland heads off into Galloway, takes it over. Good plan. So now William's man is ruling Galloway again. Okay, so Henry's going to hate this. Well, except he's a bit too busy dealing with stuff in france to actually really intervene so he kind of has to accept it and william makes roland the lord of galloway mm, what does that really mean just it means that he's sort of given him a powerful position but at the same time he's now once again the kind of feudal superior over galloway okay. so he's kind of restored his status mm. in that mm. territory better yet in 1187 donald mcwilliam dies uh, so no more uprisings. no more northern rebellion oh. William led an army up to Inverness in pursuit of the rebels but Roland actually takes over the army because he's got experience of mountainous warfare from mm. Galloway he heads up wins a battle at Mamgarvia 
Donald is killed, and his head is brought to William at Inverness. Imagine, imagine opening that. Well, I wasn't expecting. Oh, brilliant! It's a this horrible guy. head. <laughs> It's like a cat <laughs> a dead bird do you, do you mind signing for this sir <laughs> now in 1189 things get even more better for William because Henry II dies sad day for Rex fans everywhere and instead of Henry II we now have Richard the Lionheart now Richard is desperate to go off on the third crusade and he is willing, he, want, he infamously said he'd sell London, yeah. you know, to make the money. So William offers him 10,000 marks, which is a huge uh, amount of money at the time, to effectively buy back Scottish independence. So we have what's called the quit claim of Canterbury. In effect, the Treaty of Falaise is annulled. And Lionheart went through with it? He went through with it because he wants the money. Apparently this is the biggest single donation that he gets to his Just Giving campaign for the Third <laughs> Crusade. That's a great move by our man um, Billy, though, isn't it? Yeah, he's got it back. Did he push them? Because that was his opportunity to get Northumberland back, though, his his dream. It, did he not have enough in the piggy bank? Well, I mean, that's it's quite a bit of money. Mm. But uh, he's not given up on Northumbria, don't worry about that. Okay. Things get even better in 1198, when finally his wife gives birth to a son, Alexander. Hey! And there was much rejoicing. Good. However, things then turn a little bit back into the difficult for William. As you said, what about Northumbria? Mm. William was hoping that by having all these good relations with Richard, maybe he's got a chance to get it back. What's more, with William, uh, with Richard not really on the scene anymore, William's able to increase his influence in Northumbria without fear of uh, recriminations. So he marries two of his daughters to local lords. Right. In Northumbria, yeah. so he's now okay. ingratiating himself with the local nobles because David the First had struggled because basically the northeast of England didn't like the Scots. Yeah. So William's trying to think, oh, if I get them all on side, maybe they'll actually want me. This is a much better approach than constantly tapping a very powerful English king on the shoulder. Yeah. Um, when Richard was captured on his way back from the Crusades and his brother John tried to take the throne, mm. uh, William refused to help John and actually contributed 2,000 marks to Richard Ransom. So he's just paying his way out. He offers 15,000 marks for Northumberland, Cumberland and Westmoreland, but Richard says no. That's more than he offered so even for, more all than he offered for all of Scotland. Now, to be fair, Richard does actually say sort of yes, but he won't give any of the castles. So he basically says, you can have all the lands, but the castles stay with the Bishop of Durham. And William's like, ah, oh, but I kind of really want the castles because those the are the good bit. bits. <laughs> yeah, you can have the cake, none of the icing. So reluctantly, William doesn't have get to do the deal. He still doesn't have Northumbria. God, I mean, if he's got fifteen grand lying around, yeah. he just said, right, Northumberland then, but I get everything. Yeah. And why is he so hung up on it again? Because he was made. He was the Earl when he was fourteen, and Henry took it away from him. Couldn't he settle for being the Earl and not have it as his own territory, just be the Earl? Because the castles. Ah, oh, this well, man. comes with it. It's very sort of, it's like Henry II's this incredibly childish tantrum mm. that we had. And William also, it's like he's a, teen, a young teenager. This is the defining thing. It's like his first yeah. love, in effect. Yeah, yeah. He, never, he never gets over that, yeah. that first disappointment. He wants it back. Yeah, so he can see how unfair the tantrum was. But on the same hand, he <laughs> yeah. was the king, so... Exactly. About it, yeah. 
Now, in 1199, Richard the Lionheart dies, and he is replaced by his brother John. Mm. This is a bit awkward for William, given that he hadn't supported John (laughs) previously. And indeed, when John becomes king, William demands that John give him the earldom of Northumberland, or else William will support John's rival, his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, who technically was actually in primogeniture higher up than John. So he was the son of the brother Geoffrey. Oh, yeah, of course, because the brother Geoffrey was older. Yeah, Geoffrey had died, but his son is mm. actually still mm. alive. Uh, John doesn't really bother to <laughs> acknowledge this. Um, captures Arthur, and Arthur disappears. Oh, uh, yeah, they do that. Which rather takes the emphasis uh, away from William's threat. Yeah. So the next few years, we've got continual disputes between the two, failure for them to really meet and properly negotiate the kind of toing and froing, never quite uh, managing it. Um, however, in 1208, the Bishop of Durham died. Now, technically, we said before that Richard had said he keeps the castles. The Bishop mm. of Durham is kind of pseudo-Earl of Northumberland. Because he's like the king's man. Because he's the king's man. So when he dies, there's a bit of a power vacuum. Mm. So John heads up and builds a castle, or starts building a castle, right on the border at Tweedmouth. Mm which is quite a uh, threatening thing to do for the King of Scots. Oh, right on the castle, uh, right right on the border. border with Scotland. Right. William doesn't like this, so sends men to pull it down, mm. leading to a bit of a standoff. Yes. So William has an army in 1209, sort of somewhere near Norham. John has an army facing each other off. It's really getting very, very close to battle. Yeah. Is he going to do it? He bottles it. Oh, his chance against John, of all people. Against John, of all people. William is now pretty old, to be fair, and uh, has been suffering frequent ill health at this time. John's got a very large army. He's actually brought in Welsh princes and their troops before mm. heading up, so it's a pretty extensive force. So instead, William signs the Treaty of Norham in 1209, in which he forfeits his claim to Northumberland and hands over his daughters as hostages. So he's Ooh. kind of almost returned to the Treaty yeah. of Falaise. Not quite as bad, no. but... I bet he would have felt that one more, though. Mm. At that, right in the twilight of his years, and it's him signing into, into law that, that he's given up with his whole life's work. Yeah. And he probably threw in a bit of, uh, a bit of um, regret about the kids as well. So in William's final years, as we said, his health is suffering a bit now. He's in his 60s now. Mm. Um, apparently his itinerary show that his doctors were pretty much always going with him whenever he goes off anywhere. His doctors always have to go with him. But his main concern now really is just to settle his earthly affairs and ensure that his son Alexander will succeed him. Yeah. So that's partly perhaps what was motivating his sort of bottling it, as we call it, at Norham, because he thinks, oh, if I lose this, what's yeah. going to happen to my son? And all of Scotland. And all of Scotland. <laughs> I, know, I know from past experience that this can backfire. Um, so, um, actually, his wife, Ermengarde, and increasingly Alexander, as he starts to become a teenager, actually start to do quite a lot of the government in the later years, because William's too ill at various times to do it. But William can't just sit back and relax. In 1211, we have another McWilliam, this oh. time a chap called Goffraid. John went off to Ireland, tugged some beards, and expelled Goffraid, who's the son of the Donald that was killed in 1187. So this Goffrey comes back to Scotland, raises an army, and invades Ross and Murray again. The, he needs to do... Who was it that went around just slaughtering everyone? Malcolm II. He needs to do that. Yeah. Well, William does lead a campaign, despite his ill health, but he's unable to capture Goffrey, so he has to return south. 
Now, in 1212, the following year, John demands another meeting with William, but he's too ill to attend. So instead, Ermengarde goes, his wife. Yeah. She does the negotiating. Apparently, it's pretty impressive. Um, she gets Alexander knighted by John. Yeah. And there's an agreement that their son, Alexander, would marry a daughter of John's. Well, she's much more effective at this than he was. And also, they get some mercenary troops from John to come and sort out the business with Goffred McWilliam. Sort out. (laughs) Yes. To come and do some basic murdering. Well, thankfully, just the mere presence of the mercenary troops is enough for Goffred's supporters to decide this isn't worth the effort, Mm. and they just kill him. Yeah. Oh, right, they kill him. Yes, they betray him and he's killed. Okay. Now, in 1213, um, one of William's earlier policies to marry um, some of his daughters to local lords in Northumbria yeah. backfires on him a bit when a chap, Eustace de Vesey, who was one of his sons-in-law, um, had been plotting against John. And it all goes a bit awry, so he runs away to Scotland. And John isn't happy about this, so he demands a face-to-face meeting with William. When William's too ill, um, he demands then that Alexander come in his place. But William thinks, well, you don't have a great track record of taking young yeah. royal princes mm. into your custody, and I'm definitely dying now, so yeah. he refuses to uh, send Alexander. But in 1214, his ill health... What was the result of that, though, sir? Uh, John just sort of has to be a bit grumpy about it, because he's got the whole barons revolting in England, uh, so he can't yeah. do too much about Scotland. In 1214, William's health is declining further and further... But he can't rest on his laurels because in Murray, there's another problem. The co-earl of Caithness died, and he was replaced by a man who um, had married into the Macheth family, or was descended from the Macheths. Yet again, the sons of Alexander Mm. I. So William has to make an exhausting trip all the way up into Murray, into the north, secures a peace, takes this guy John's daughter as a hostage, before making the boy's journey all the way back home down south again. Just to die? Just to die. Ah. His health is finally broken, and he dies at Stirling Castle, attended by his wife, Ermengarde, and his son, Alexander, at the age of 71, and he's buried in Arbroath Abbey. Well, we're in the right century now for me. Yes, we are. So that is the uh, very extensive and uh, eventful life and reign of uh, William the Lion. But how's he going to fare when we review him? Battleliness! Now, he does have uh, some things in his favour here. Really? He's got a pretty good reputation as a knight. Well, he's got the playing card. He was said to have played a credible role in tournaments mm. in France. So, you know, he seems to have a certain capability as a soldier. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it is... He's reached the the basic level for me, <laughs> in that he has he has ability. Well, we have Galloway and Gilbrecht, very much a direct challenge to Scottish um, control of Galloway. Mm-hmm. Then he's able to get his chap Roland to replace Gilbrecht when Gilbrecht dies in 1185. Mm-hmm. And then Roland, very much his man, to the extent that he actually helps him put down northern rebellions. Yeah. So we've gone from man. having the guy in charge of Galloway trying to give him a give up the territory to England, now the man in charge is helping him defeat Northern yeah. Rebellions in Scotland. He's his William the Marshal Marshal. Exactly. Mm. He does ultimately put down all of the Northern Rebellions, mm. and they were clearly serious rebellions, so the Donald MacWilliam is a dynastic threat because he's a grandson of Duncan II, and they seem to have linked with the Macheths, who were descended from Alexander I. Yeah, and they, they, they sound like chaps who know how to 
their way around a sword, you know. Yeah. 1181 to 87, Donald seized the earldom of Ross, and it was clear that William at this point did lose the north for a while, so there were no new bishops, or rather the, there was a vacancy in the bishopric of Murray. Mm-hmm. So he obviously didn't have the power to do anything about it, which does indicate that it was a serious enough rebellion, and it obviously had enough support, that it's not just a menial little yeah. uprising, it is actually a serious threat. And he and put thus, it as, mm. Yeah, thus the fact that he deals with it. Uh, is impressive. Donald is defeated, his head got sent to William at Inverness, as we said. And this is where maybe we'll give him a bit more credit, because he does then really bring Murray under royal control in a way that it hadn't been um, to the same extent before. A major network of castles is built, new sheriffdoms, loyal knights uh, are put in place, including his brother David as Lord of Garioch, which was this really large territory. But it's still... It's still playing up a bit, though, isn't it, towards the end? Yes, but uh, he does emerge from his very, very sick bed to launch a campaign against Gofraid. Yeah. Now, admittedly, he did have to have John's mercenary troops come and help. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, William shows his hardiness. Apparently, Gofraid was initially just taken to Murray in chains, but William didn't want to see him, so he had his head cut off. Well, all right. Okay. Yeah, nice. Nice. Mm. Now, we also have uh, some fun times with Orkney and Caithness. There's some rather fun stuff from the Orkneyinger saga. Who wrote this one? Vikings. Okay, good. So Harold Madison is the trouble man. He was the Earl of Orkney and Caithness since 1139 when he was five years old. Right. So he'd initially been set up by David I, so initially he was a Scottish protégé. But mm-hmm. as he gets older and he reaches majority, he decides to be a Viking and be independent. And Quite he no right. longer wants to be friends with the Scots. And there's strong evidence that he supported Donald McWilliam in the 1180s when he had that rebellion in the north. Yeah. Now, William sends in a chap called Harold Ungi. Good name. Um, also known as Harold the Young. So he's the head of a rival Orkney dynasty, um, and he comes to Caithness to press his claims to become Earl instead of Madison. So, 1197, the son of Harold Madison, who's a chap called Thorfinn, he invades Caithness and he fights against the royal troops. William marches the royal army into Caithness, which is very far north for a Scottish army to have been, mm. takes Thorfinn as hostage and then gives part of the earldom to Harold Ungi. So now he's taking on Vikings as well. Yeah. Mm, gosh. However, Harold Madison um, doesn't really like the fact that Harold Ungi's been given part of his territory. No. So, we are preparing for a battle between Harold Madison and Harold Ungi. <laughs> now, Ungi, when he sees the uh, size of Madison's army, is rather reluctant to fight. Yeah. But uh, one of his men says rather sneeringly to him, it's very sad when the Earl's own brother-in-law crosses the Pentland Firth just to discover that he's left his guts behind. Ooh. So they fight the battle, and they all get killed by oh. Harold Madison. Brilliant. <laughs> Including the guy that... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I made a mistake! <laughs> yes. And Harold Madison then properly invades Caithness. The soldiers in Caithness are very reluctant to fight, and they fear this large army will defeat them and not show them any mercy. It is, after all, a Viking army. Mm. However... The Bishop of Caithness tries to convince them that all will be okay. If we get on well together, he said, he'll spare your lives. So they decided to leave things to the Bishop. As the Earl's troops stormed up to the stronghold from the ships, the Bishop set out to give the Earl some kind word of welcome. But what actually happened was that Earl Harold took the Bishop captive and had his tongue cut out and a knife driven into his eyes, blinding him. So we just thought we, it was that we'd just have a chat and all get along, and what did he think was going on? <laughs> That's crazy. 
and you can imagine the others looking over the battlements or from their fortification going yeah I knew that had happened right sharpen your swords let's <laughs> <Yeah>. go <laughs> however William isn't very pleased about what happens to his bishop he was said to have flown into a rage raised an even bigger army than what he had before and Harold Madison now is the one thinking ooh that's mm. a lot more men than I've got <laughs> So Harold sues for peace, but apparently William refused to even consider negotiating unless Harold Madison granted him a quarter of all Caithness revenues. It's a lot. It is. And technically, you could argue that that was really the opening gambit of the negotiation. Uh, yeah, so... So uh, Harold Madison agrees to this, and an- another co-earl is installed in Caithness, and William has really got himself as the dominant force in the very north of Scotland. So that's the positives. Yeah. And, you know, in a way, we do have him more dominant than he was before over Galloway, Mm. more dominant over Caithness and the Earl of Orkney than he was before. Which is, I suppose, impressive, given that it was also the reign of Henry II. Yes, and uh, we probably should turn, perhaps, to the less Mm. successful aspects of William's military record. First of all, we've got this ridiculous obsession with Northumbria. Yeah, such a hamstring biggest impact perhaps is that it really wastes a lot of time and energy focusing on the southern border when actually if he'd just gone straight up to the north straight to Galloway mm. think how much stronger he would have been if he hadn't had all that messing around in, with yeah Korea. yeah silly billy and re- in reality David gained all that territory at a time of record divisions and civil war mm. in England William's up against Henry II Rex Factor winner yeah there's just, I mean, we can look back on it and say that is never going to work. Yeah. But even at the time, you could see that this, <laughs> this is a dude who owns the left of France, for goodness sake. It is. He's not, he's not going to give up a little bit of territory because his annoying neighbour says, can I have that, can I have that? <laughs> I just don't know what he was thinking. Now, in 1173 to 74, when we have the Great Rebellion, William's um, involvement, even before his capture at Annick, wasn't particularly impressive. Um, as you said, his councillors had advised against it at all, and perhaps they would have appreciated that when Henry II had taken back the castles of Northumbria, he didn't just take them back and leave them, but he re-fortifies them. Yeah, he did. He was very good at that, wasn't he? Henry was a good castle builder, not mm. perhaps the best in English history, <laughs> one might argue, but he was a good one. And um, the Scottish troops don't really have the means to besiege any of these castles. No, because it's a different type of warfare, isn't it, mm. for them? That they're not really used to, I imagine. Exactly. So basically what happens is that um, William invades the north, his brother David raises rebellion in Huntington and Leicester. Mm. Um, But essentially, William just kind of destroys the countryside around the castles, but doesn't actually manage to capture any of them. Mm, It seems a bit of a token effort. Yeah, because they're all too well defended for him to be able to actually get anywhere. And then we have the Second Battle of Annick. Oh, the biggie. The one that... Mm. Yeah. Now, of course, we recall that his um, great-grandfather, Malcolm III, was killed in a skirmish, skirmish yeah. at Annick. Right. So Annick, not a particularly prosperous place for Scottish kings. <laughs> and when he's there, he divides his forces into three groups, and they go off plundering in various directions. But there's a thick fog. Hmm. So William, in the centre, only has about 60 knights with him, and they can't really see what's going on elsewhere. Now, at this point, Ranulf de Glanville comes north, and he's only got about 400 knights which, compared to the rest of the Scottish army, is very small. Compared to 60 knights of William, it's quite large. Mm. And sure enough, he happens upon William. In the fog. In the fog. Wow, this sounds dramatic. The alarm is raised in the Scottish camp. William, as is his wont, comes charging out of his tent and leads a direct charge at the English. Wow, I didn't think he had it in him. 
And apparently he was said to have um, shouted as he charged, leading his men, Now we shall see which of us are good knights. And the answer was an emphatic, the English, it seems. His horse was killed beneath him and probably fell on him. Oh. And he was captured. It was a very short skirmish. Didn't last very long at all. <laughs> and he was taken to Northampton with his feet tied under the belly of another horse. Effectively like a what? common criminal. Oh, so he was sitting on the horse. Sitting on the horse and, his, and then the rope goes under. Underneath. He's, he's a king. That's so humiliating. It's very humiliating. That's, that's, really, that's really quite bad, isn't it? And then we have the Treaty of Falaise. Now, to mm. go into this in a little bit more detail, William became the liege man of Henry accepted that the Scottish Church was, and always had been, subject to the English Church, had to give up about 20 noble hostages, including his brother David, who was at that time the heir, because he hadn't, hadn't had a son at this point. What's more, Henry and the English garrisoned the castles of Roxburgh, Berwick, Jedburgh, Stirling, and Edinburgh. And they're effectively in control of southern Scotland? Yeah. Goodness me. And not only that, but William and Scotland have to pay the English troops to garrison the castles. So William has to raise a special tax to pay the cost of the English soldiers garrisoning this Scottish castles. This is awful. Oh, crikey Moses. <laughs> they must have, he must have... Couldn't believe it when he saw that written down. <laughs> That's shocking. So where does he live? Where's he, where's he based? Well, it's not clear if they occupied all of those. So he actually seems to have been at Stirling quite soon afterwards. Okay. So, I mean, probably it would have been a bit too much bother for Henry, actually, to occupy all of them. That's quite a lot of troops he has to send up just mm. to make a point. And then we had the Treaty of Norham with John later. So William had had this great time in the 1190s where Richard had just got rid of all of these awful yeah. conditions. William's back on top. But then there was the failed brinkmanship where the two armies faced off against each other. Yeah. And William's a bit too ill to Pretty do anything bad. about it. He'd been puffing himself up, talking a really big game for 10 years, but when push came to shove, he didn't do it. Um, so, in William's favour, the castle that he was upset about John building was brought down. Oh, it, how come? That was part of the treaty. Oh, right, okay. John gets 15,000 marks from William just to secure the peace. That, well, at least he had that saved up. That he offered <laughs> yes, that exactly. for the Northumbria and all that. <laughs> um, he had to renounce his claim to the North and give... Uh, his two daughters and other nobles as hostages. And they were held at Corfe Castle down by south. John. Down south. And William never saw them again. But just keeping Scotland cost him 30,000 marks. Because <laughs> he paid 15 for the initially to hmm. Richard. Well, I think he actually, he actually paid 10,000 to Richard and then he offered 15 for Northumberland. Okay, so, so it was well, only 25,000. It's a lot now. So then, I yes. don't know. I don't know how much a mark is, but twenty five thousand anything's good. Yes. Now, so this is a bit of a funny one. I mean, we've got actually, and like I said, in terms of Scotland and its borders, ultimately it's a bit better at the end than it was at the start, which, in one sense, is about as much as you could hope for. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's worthy of some points. And yet, it's really fallacious. Is perhaps the most humiliating outcome. It's almost one of the most disastrous defeats yeah, he possibly have had. Yeah, but then he pays his way out. Yeah. But then he has to pay again just to <laughs> keep the status quo. Yeah. And that's all it is in the end, is a status quo that he's paid a lot for, for his weird obsessions. Yeah. 
and he's been humiliated so many times. <laughs> the Flays thing, even as a kid, having yeah. Northumbria taken away, the the captivity, and well, and being bound, yeah, it's not good. And the the worst thing, in a way, is because his brother David wasn't at uh, Annex, so he wasn't captured. It would kind of been better if William had just been killed, because mm. then they wouldn't have had to sign a treaty to get him yeah. released. Yeah, definitely. I like the amount of work you've put in there to, to on the hero <laughs> stuff, but I can't get this taste out of my mouth. I don't feel I can go any higher than a three. No, it's it's a really hard one to score because yeah. if you're just to kind of look at the well, I suppose if you look at the balance, the literal balance sheet is really <laughs> bad. But if you look at the net gain to loss, yeah, I mean, he doesn't actually have Scotland be conquered and occupied, yeah, apart from the castles. Uh, just, I mean, it, it, it conquered and occupied by uh, sort of a clerical measure rather than yeah. actual war. So in a way, it could have been worse. And he does have sort of gains in Scotland, but like you said, he doesn't gain make gains in Scotland by great battles particularly. No. But I'm going to be a bit more generous because I think he does actually face a lot of difficulties, yeah. and he does keep going, and he does ultimately manage to get through. Yeah, he scrambles through, battered and bruised. I nearly brought it up actually when I looked at mm. the card how the tunic there is quite torn and frayed. Yeah. And I feel like that's how he's come to the end. It wasn't an easy no. reign, but he... But he did it, he's got the status quo, he's knackered, there's no money in the bank, but his son is on the throne and he goes, right, I'm out, <laughs> that's it, done, forget it. So I'm, I'm going to give him a four. Mm. So that's a seven for battliness. Scandal. We've got a few little tidbits here. <laughs> First of all... A little hint of corruption. Oh, nice. Um, a Glasgow uh, canon, as in a religious <laughs> canon, not a... <laughs> um, in 1207 alleged that a royal chaplain had obtained the bishopric of Glasgow by bribing William and Ermengarde. That doesn't surprise me, given the amount of money they had to find. Well, exactly. And he did have a, something of a tendency to appoint his own men rather than religious figures. I sort of thought that happened all the time anyway. Yeah, I guess maybe he's... Bit blatant. Particularly, yeah. Now, as well as the line of justice, the Irish annals nickname him Garth. Well, that doesn't sound complimentary. The Harsh. Oh. It's a bit of a brutal streak yeah. in William. A little almost a Plantagenet-esque um, thing going on. He does have a bit of a track record of brutally executing his opponents, his rebel opponents, the Scottish ones. Now, you recall um, when he had the trouble with Harold Madison that he took um, Harold's son Thorvin as prisoner. Now, when Harold continued to do stuff, William decided he'd had enough. And this is what the Orkney... No, Walter Bauer has to say. A little later, because his father had broken his word, Thorvin's eyes were put out, and his genitals cut off, and he ended his life in prison. He en... Hang on. Sorry, I've got to unpack this a bit. He ended his life in prison as a result of that, or he sat around for a long time with um, various bits and pieces missing, and then died. I don't know what's worse. I don't know what's worse. Well, I do know what's worse. <laughs> I think get it all over with. Yes. Oh, dear. Yeah, that is that is rather garth. Yes. <laughs> now, of course, there's brutality, there's a bit of corruption, there's only one thing that you're actually interested in when it yeah. comes to scandal. Yeah. And this is what Gerald of Wales has to say about William. Oh, Man of Beer Castle is mm. where he lived. Lovely. Although in his youthful years he somewhile acted as a youth and did not 
curbed the full the impulses of the flesh and did not by prevention and superiority of reason subdue the assaults of sensuality what was he saying he put it about oh he did i yes. thought he was saying oh right <laughs> so he didn't curb to the full the impulses oh, didn't of curb the right. yeah, he yeah. did not subdue the assaults of sensuality the assaults oh that gets a bit of a oh i had my hand on it <laughs> He has known illegitimate children. For the first time with the Scots, we've got definite illegitimate. Well done, Billy. He has one child by an unnamed daughter of Adam de Hythus and five by Isabel de Avenel. Oh, you liked her. So we've got at least six illegitimate children that we know of. Right. Because we'll recall, of course, that he doesn't get married until his 40s. Yeah, so he's making the most of it. He had plenty of time. Exactly. Yeah. On the downside, he was apparently um, entirely faithful to Ermengarde, uh, so he doesn't actually have any of these whilst mm. married to her. So we've got a few little ticks there, a bit of violence, a bit of uh, bedroom antics, a little bit of corruption in the church. And you didn't mention the old um, DHL head. Oh, yes, and the head bubble. Yeah. Yes, so yes, yeah, that's There's another example of there. his... Uh, Garth. Garth, yes. Is it TH or F? BH. Oh. Um, it's Irish. Uh, yes. TPYF <laughs> Andrew. That's better. That's a really mm. nice, solid bit of scandal cake served up with sexy cream. Yeah. So, six. Yeah, it's, I mean, none of those are, you know, for the ages. No. Lovely. Well yeah. done. You know, really good stuff. I'm giving them six as well. So that's a 12 for scandal. Subjectivity. Well, according to John of Forden, this is the Lion of Justice. Oh, yeah. What's he got to say for himself? Um, Scottish governance and administration is now stretching over a much larger area than ever before, with much more central control. So this is including the rebellious north. He's bringing it not just militarily, but also in terms of government Mm. under the central control. Um, He was often in court himself, presiding over cases rather like Henry II um, in that regard. And indeed, they did actually match a lot of the law codes from England. Right. In the sense, they just kind of copy them. So like yeah. the Clarendon codes in the 1160s. Um, there's a spread of justiciars and sheriffs across the country. So you've got more organisation, which reports back to the centre. It's all a bit more organised and uh, systematic. The economy develops under William. We've got various new burrs, i.e. market towns. It is under William's reign that we start to see the proper transition towards a money economy. Oh, right. I hadn't considered when that might have happened. Dave's the first one to have Scottish coinage, but Mm. um, it's under William that we see this really taken to another level. He improves the Scottish mints, um, and he makes sure that the coins are of equal quality to the English. Murray mints. (laughs) And so now Scottish coinage is viable abroad. Because uh, it's the it, same level of quality. Well, I don't know, Graham. <laughs> it's what's this? Eight hundred years, and you still get a snooty looking dog. It's Mister Jones. Scottish note. That's true. <laughs> um, but that is good for trade. Yeah. Once you get the manager in, and they <laughs> yeah. explain to them. The bureaucracy also develops as well. He has a specialised staff in his writing office who are producing quality documents that are consistent with other sort of equivalent European nations at this time. Mm. New financial centre based at Stirling which is sufficiently advanced that it is able to raise the tax required to pay that quick claim in 1189. Isn't there a money museum there now? Or is that Edinburgh, actually? Don't know. Write in if you know. Mm. Write in. God. <laughs> P.O. Box. <laughs> 
Now, despite the Treaty of Falaise, Scottish Church does actually gain its independence fully in William's reign. So we've had this ongoing dispute where the Archbishop of York claimed that they had sovereignty over the Scottish Church. And mm. at Falaise, it stated that the Scottish Church was subject to the English Church, mm. but the bishops refused to accept this. Right. So they appeal to Pope Alexander III, and there's a council at Northampton in 1176 which fizzles out because the Archbishop of Canterbury and York can't agree over which one of them should be receiving the submission. Right. And then Pope Alexander writes to the Scottish bishops, and he agrees that this all sounds a little bit dodgy, so he suspends York's jurisdiction pending a full papal investigation. So, actually, the Falaise thing didn't come into full effect? No, it didn't. The right. church resists. And in 1192, Pope Celestine III states that the Scottish Church was the special daughter of Rome and was obedient to him directly and not York. Do you think that's because they were worried about the amount of power Henry II had? I suppose also, from their point of view, Henry is saying, yeah, totally my fault, killed, <laughs> killed that guy, yeah. biggie, all that. <laughs> But can I have this church? Yes. <laughs> so they're definitely going to say no, of course. Yeah. So that's good. So that's a yeah. major thing achieved. Yeah. Arguably more because of the bishops than William, but nevertheless. Mm. Now, despite all of the troubles with Galloway and the rebellions in the north and William attacking Henry II, actually, for the most part, Scotland is pretty prosperous at this time. It's pretty stable. It's a very long reign that William has. Oh, yeah, we'll find out how long. Find out how long, long. but this, yeah. is, this is a long reign. Mm. Free from invasion or civil war. Well, it had a lot of rebellions, though, didn't it? But in the north, oh. so not in the sort of the, the heart of Scotland, mm. in the centre. For the most part, it's OK. Yeah, because he's able to set up all this governance. Mm. It wouldn't be able to with... Yeah. Now, the succession is one of the major issues for William later in the reign. As we said, he only married in 1186... Um, but by 1195, he was ill, didn't have an heir, still, yeah. and was worried he might die. Apparently, he tried and failed to have his nobles accept one of his daughters as his heir. Oh, that old chestnut. They weren't ready yeah. for that. Um, but thankfully, 1198, when William was about 55, he had a son born. Mm. Now, this doesn't sound like a massive thing. It's like, oh, he has a son, you know, big deal. But no king that we have ever reviewed before has managed to pass the throne on to his son. Primogeniture has never actually happened. Yes, but which Malcolm was it that... N- that yeah, Malcolm II and David I both passed it on to their grandson because... The because s- it died. Yeah. yeah, right, okay. But wow. nevertheless, it's never happened. And uh, Alexander is young, of course, with William being 55 when Alexander's born. So that's why William is doing these dodgy deals with John, why he isn't fighting him. He's doing all yeah. he can to get him acknowledged. He has his nobles acknowledge him twice. His brother David, who'd been heir for about 30 years, was a bit reluctant, and it took a few more years for him to do it. But William does get him to do it. God. Right. And then 1214, when William dies, Alexander becomes Alexander II. So for the first wow. time in Scottish Rex Factor, mm. we have a father-to-son primogeniture succession that's biggie and it does as you said before it does put his uh, his other decisions in a in a different light Mm. about not taking on john and you think he's ill really kind of for the last 15 years pretty much the entirety of alexander's life william's a bit ill Mm. and he's just trying to make sure Mm. yes it's pretty good against him Mm. he's a bit too french oh right okay maybe he was very much enamoured of the Norman, uh, the Norman's chivalric world, hence all the knighty stuff. 
yeah. that we talked about earlier. Um, he attracts various Norman knights to court, so probably the ones that don't manage to get a good position in Henry's court, just go to Scotland <laughs> instead. <laughs> he extends feudalism with more Norman knights. He only spoke French, as far as we can tell. Ah. So he didn't speak Gaelic, didn't speak English either. How on earth did the Scots put up with him? Because they thought the other fellows were a bit too English, didn't they? Well, exactly. So that's maybe why some of the northern uh, rebellions Mm. gained some traction. He was often referred to, actually, as William de Warren, i.e. by his Norman mother's surname. Right, Which is a very, again, in terms of culture, Mm. Mm. identifying one, not the other. On the other hand... um, he, you know, he follows the traditional Scottish course of desperately trying to take over the northeast of England, <laughs> which is about as Scottish yeah. as you can get. But not a single piece of tartan on him, according to this. Now, as we've covered in battleliness, we won't go into too much detail, but the Anglo-Scottish uh, relations were pretty expensive. <laughs> Good 25,000 marks yeah. um, that he's having to do, um, as well as um, raising some money unspecified to pay the English to garrison Scottish castles. Yeah, that I, that's incredible. That one really got me. And he gave Richard 2,000 marks for his uh, ransom oh, yeah, as well, just that. to keep him... 27,000. Let's round <laughs> yeah. up to 30 with yeah, the garrison. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Now, he also has some conflict with the church, particularly in St Andrews. In 1178, the bishop died, and the local clerics elected a man called John the Scot, which does what does, it says on the tin. <laughs> doesn't whittle it down a bit, though, in Scotland, <laughs> yeah. does it? But William instead forces the election of his own chaplain, a man called Hugh. <laughs> the, the chaplain. <laughs> now, Alexander, Pope Alexander III supported the uh, clerics with their choice of John, because, again, the papacy is trying to support the bishops over the kings yeah. when we have this sort of conflict. But William doesn't like this, so in 1180, Hugh, um, having been deposed by a papal legate, um, William says, no, not having any of that, exiles John, the cleric's choice, um, but then has himself and Scotland placed under an interdict and excommunication. Oh, now that's really serious in those days, isn't it? That's pretty serious. On the upside, in 1182, Alexander III died. Oh, good news. So the Bishop of Glasgow persuaded the new Pope, Lucius III, to lift the interdict and the excommunication. And weirdly, William gets presented with a golden rose by the Pope. Why? Well, this is usually only given in Lent to territory where the Pope was staying which wasn't the case. <laughs> he was not in Scotland. But it's a bit of a symbol to say if, if the Pope was staying there, like the, the papacy has come back to Scotland mm. or something. Um, so the outcome was that William's choice, Hugh, remains the Bishop of St Andrews, but pays 40 marks a year to John, who became the Bishop of Dunkeld. But, I mean, he got, if he got his way... He got his way. Yeah, fine. So, actually, subjectivity is not too bad well, when we quite good. level that off. Yeah, I think... See, when we were going through this, I thought... I was just thinking of all the rebellions... Mm. And um, trying to find the measure of the man. But actually, this is pretty chunky. I'm going to... I'm, I'm hovering around a six or a seven here. I feel mm. like it's the same... It, sitting next to Slice's can, uh, Scandal Cake. Yeah. This, this is a, a really nice serving of, you know, some activity mm. carrots. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got the... Yeah, so... And there's at least six of them in my mind. Mm. Six subjectivity carrots. Yeah, I'm going, I think that's six as well. Again, it's not amazing. That's the thing. It's, it's good and it's solid. Yeah. Better than average. There's nothing spectacular that he does that will put it up to a high score, but it's pretty good, really. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a primogeniture thing, but it's mm. just, it's, I feel like it's nice to be back on this kind of ground. Yeah. Yeah. Six. So that's a 12 for subjectivity. Longevity. 
Now, this is an interesting one, because we've said previously that we felt that the Scottish series in particular has revealed a certain unfairness in the way that we've been scoring longevity, because Mm. we were originally using the uh, patiometer. Yes, we've served us very well. Thank you very much, wonderfully well. So that turned the longest reign into a multiple of 20, and then you use that Mm. as a score calculator for the others. The problem is that if you essentially have one monarch that's there for ages... Mm everybody else gets a really low score. So you have, um, for example, Alfred the Great in the English series, king for 28 and a half years, very impressive in that era, only 8.97 out of 20. Mm. Malcolm II in this series, king for 35.67 years, and only 12.37, which is a bit better, but again, it's quite a long Mm. way up you can Mm. go. So we've had a few people have messaged in with some uh, suggestions, some very good ideas. Thank you for everybody that sent them in. But the one we're going with uh, was suggested by Ed Cadwallader. Oh! Cadwallader. Yeah, now he's he's cropped up a couple of times, isn't he? Mm, He's been messaged in before. So his uh, suggestion is to have it effectively evenly distributed from 0.5 to 20 in terms of the scores. So it's going to be consistent with how we score the others. So rather than like a 2.17, it will be 0.51, 1.52. So I'll do a blog on this to explain exactly how it works. But basically, the lowest one gets 0.5, the longest one gets 20. Mm. the median the one in the middle gets 10 mm. then you walk out work out like the first quartile third quartile okay and you have even distribution yeah. so it's roughly even from 0.5 to 20 that's better isn't it yeah so that you don't have yeah you don't have a massive gap of, but it could be like the yeah. second best getting 12 and the top getting 20 exactly great so now alfred the great rather than getting 8.97 gets 15 and Malcolm II, rather than getting 12.37, gets 16. Now, how has this affected the scores? Well, Henry II is still our top-scoring monarch. Yeah, he had to be really... But his score is now much better, because he's another one of those ones that had a good length reign, but it's dwarfed by okay. Victoria. Have we seen much shuffling elsewhere? Um, there's a little bit of shuffling. Edward II actually did um, fairly... He, d- he improved a bit. Hello? Um, which um, Ed, when he was suggesting it, said, on the one hand, seems a bit wrong, and yet, on the other hand, the fact that he was king for quite a while, despite being rubbish, and had several children, despite being gay, maybe he doesn't have <laughs> more points. Yeah, 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 it does level out, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it is a fairer system. So we're going to go with that now for longevity. Now, previously, Patty became the patiometer. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of... Um, the Cadwalladerometer is perhaps a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, it is a bit twisty. I asked uh, Ed what he thought about it, and he suggested the Ediometer. But mm. uh, if anyone's got any suggestions for what our new longevity scoring system should be... The Caddy Calculator. Caddy Calc. Caddy Calc, yeah. Yeah. Well, if anyone can top us... <gasps> Ed's oh. Accumulator. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, keep sending your suggestions. P.O. Box 1. Anyway, so for William... He was king from the 9th of December 1165 to the 4th of December 1214. So we'll round it up to a solid 49 years. Big. Now, under the patiometer, actually, it doesn't affect him all that, mus- all that much. So he would have got 16 under the patiometer. Yeah. Now he gets 18.5. Oh, that's right up there. Because this is the second longest reign in Scottish history. Wow. It's the longest one we've had so far. Wow. So yeah, it's the longest we've Effectively so half a century of William the Lion as king. Yeah. Good grief. Yeah, that's rather good. That, with his subjectivity and his scandal, it's going to serve him some great stead. And he's got one more still to come. Oh, yeah. Dynasty, not the program. 
Now, we had a, a discussion about this, and we decided that actually the patiometer still kind of works for Dynasty. Yeah. Because with the patiometer, basically, you just take the number of children and times it by two. For the Scots, because there are ten of them, it works very nicely. Mm. With um, Ed's system... The ten children is the maximum. Yeah, ten children is the maximum. With Ed's system, you go from zero children with a score of naught, and then one, because that's the median, would actually be ten. We thought that's maybe a bit too big a jump. It would skirt too much, wouldn't it? So we're going to keep the patiometer for Dynasty. Now, William had four surviving children that gives him a dynastic score of eight that gives him a total score of 57.5 sounds big that's up there that's a that's a pretty good that is dare we say in the rex factor territory score in terms oh yeah 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 but fortunately this is not an objective decision it's totally subjective the score is only one aspect of it we've now got to decide whether or not he has that certain something that mark of greatness that incredible achievement and lasting legacy that we call Rex Factor well there are arguments for and against with this chap yeah I can't shake it I don't know why well we've got an incredibly long reign Mm, undoubtedly very long nearly 50 years as king which, with all the stuff that's going on and all the mess that he's getting himself into, yeah. it's pretty impressive that he lasts that long. And ill for a third of it. Yeah, and still dealing with rebellions mm. up in the north. We have a significant expansion of Scottish influence in Galloway and in the north, and indeed Caithness and kind of over Orkney a bit as well. Mm-hmm. So he's expanding a little bit more towards what we now think of as mainland Scotland. Yeah. It's starting to become a bit more of a reality that his successors may well be able to build on. Um, And we have the first ever successful primogeniture in Scottish history. Yes, that means slightly more to me. I don't know why. That that sort of, because it's a a first, is what he can really claim. Mm. But... There is a big but. You know, when we're before, I was was saying how I think his death was like him coming through all <laughs> torn and then no money in the bank but he got a child on the throne he's, that's it mm. that is not the image of a Rex Pacta winner in my mind and that's what mm. I can't escape he did it it was secure he set stuff up but it was like he cashed in his chips right at the end well it was good and and it was good yeah. undeniably yeah. but it was like he'd been he'd had a horrible night at a casino <laughs> yeah. but he came out with the money that he started with, yes. was, sadly in this case that wasn't true, and he went to bed. Yeah. Not coming out of the casino in a Ferrari throwing cash in the air like yeah. Rex Factor winners would. I mean, there is an image, there is a moment where he has absolutely the Rex Factor moment, which is where he's at Anik, he's charged out of his tent, yeah. and he's shouting, now we shall see who is the great knight. Yeah, yeah. And you take a picture of him then, he'd be on his horse, he'd have his sword held aloft, he'd be charging into the fog yeah. against the English. Yeah. Unfortunately, he then ended up with his horse on top of him and had his feet tied up and signed the most humiliating peace treaty in Scottish <laughs> history. Exactly. That's the moment when he goes, everything on red, in one of those <laughs> terrible adverts, <adamants, laughs> and it freeze frames, the dice roll out, and then the, it cuts to just sort of some depressing scene where he goes, double zero. That's when it. he's in prison and having yeah. to pay his debts. And, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he, he went for it. I, in a way, that's what I quite like about him, is that he does actually go for the Rex Factor moments. Yeah. It would have been so much easier just to kind of sit quietly, do the little bets here mm. and there. Henry VII. <clears throat> but he doesn't. He goes all out, and he keeps mm. on doing it with Northumbria. Yeah. Um, it's like he he knew that this was a competition he had to win, 
and kept kept throwing the dice, kept throwing the dice. Just just didn't didn't quite do it for me. It's nice to have motivation with a, a medieval Scottish king. You don't mm. always have that bit of character with them, but you got it with William. Unfortunately, it probably proved his undoing when it comes to this yeah. particular decision. I mean, I think that's true. He definitely had character. It took mm. me a while to mm. get to grips with it once we hold the, heard the whole story. Um, and as you say, sometimes it's just staying alive <laughs> these days. <laughs> but it's not Rex Factor. Sadly, it is a no. William the Lion doesn't have the Rex Factor. It's got a Rex Factory name. It's got a Rex Factory name. He's got a Rex Factory card. Yeah. And he was a decent king, ultimately, I think. All the gear. You know, he went out on the te- onto the tennis court with the flashy trainers, the name. But... And, he, and he had one idea. Yeah. It was a really bad one. It's a very, very bad one. So William the Lion does not have the Rex Factor, but he has not perhaps ended up quite as shame-faced as you would have expected earlier in the episode. No. So well done. Well done, in part, <laughs> with caveats. <laughs> now, uh, we haven't read out any messages for a while, so I thought Ooh, it might be nice yeah. to do that, because we do always ask you to uh, send them in. Um, you follow us on Twitter, at RexFactorPod. Uh, like us, and get in touch on Facebook. Yes, get please. The discussions there. Uh, email us, rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com, and go on to rexfactor.wordpress.com, where you can read the blogs and complete the polls. Let us know whether you think William the Lion did enough to get the Rex Factor. And write to us at P.O. Box. <laughs> <laughs> you can support the podcast by leaving a review on iTunes and subscribing. Very, very helpful. Helps us get noticed and then more people find out about the podcast. Or, of course, word of mouth, tell your friends. Yes, please. That's been the only marketing we've really done so far, is <laughs> people ask, pleading people to tell someone else. Um, now, you can also donate to the podcast. It is a free podcast, and it will remain so, but if you would like to be very, very generous... I would. How would I do that? Well, you can go on to our rexfactor.wordpress or .podpain.com websites. You can do a one-off uh, donation via PayPal. Yeah. Or you can do crowdfunding. So click on the Be My Patron link, and you can make a monthly donation, and there are different rewards based on the level. So $1 a month, you get a mention on the podcast. Mm-hmm. $2, you get a comment read out if you want. $5, you get a mug, which are definitely getting further well, towards... Uh, can I just explain? I know this has now been about seven months we've been saying <laughs> this, but we had an email yesterday with some very, very nearly final... Uh, looking proofs exactly and that will be winging my way to you i mean i'm excited uh ten dollars a month you get a blog on the subject of your choice and fifteen dollars a month a podcast special on the subject of your choice oh i've just remembered yes now that we've got two out there at the moment for just two dollars a piece the battle of waterloo and uh, william the marshal marshal great fun episodes over two hours each long a lot of fun two dollars you get to buy them if you're a privy councillor of course you get them automatically as part of your membership and a privy councillor is someone who donates does monthly. the monthly yeah. donation uh, the next one we're going to be doing is going to be ali's dissertation Edward the first Welsh castles and the Crusades. What's I mean, the connection? What a riot! It <laughs> will, and we've got a few ideas mm. of flipping this whole darn carriage on its head. Exactly, Things Ali will change, and I perhaps will be standing in different places the next time we record this episode. It's going to be so, that's going to be the weirdest <laughs> thing for me. Well, yeah. <laughs> Um, now, thank you very much to the people who have joined the Privy Council since last time we mentioned. Uh, Ian White, Kat Connor, Kate Miller, Sarah Cashian, Laura Nicholson and Kel, Christian uh, Jackson and Evelyn Slinger. Cheers, friends. Now, we've also had a couple of people who have um, done monthly donations via PayPal. 
Oh, right. So um, it's easier for us to keep track if you do it in the crowdfunding, but if for whatever reason you really would prefer to do it on PayPal, which isn't an option with the crowdfunding, then you can do that as well and still be a Privy Councillor. As legitimate a Privy Councillor as any. So Mitchell Sklar and Ryan Bennett, thank you very, very much. Now some messages. This is a, an email, recfatpodcast.homo.com, from Onelia Ward. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have already covered this, but just in case, the reason for all the blindings oh, yeah. is that in the Byzantium period, they thought that only whole people went to heaven. Yeah. So if someone was blinded, they would not go to heaven. There were also degrees of blinding. Sometimes just the eyebrows were burnt off, depending on the crime. I mean, that sounds not at all a problem. I mean, humiliating, <laughs> but I don't actually reckon they'd have had quite a, an accurate thing. Maybe it was blinding by rolling a flaming <laughs> torch across yeah. the ice. <laughs> Mm. Uh, she also goes on to say I really 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 think Edgar the Peaceable should have got Rex oh, Factor oh goodness me he was brilliant uh, don't you remember all the kings rowing him on the boat yeah I do I, I've done all I can I don't know what else I can do because the thing is that people email in before they get to watch the video of you doing your penance so, yes uh, who is this this is Anelia Ward Anelia I'm sorry but check out the YouTube video I'm sorry <laughs> Matthew Turner on Facebook just finished listening to the Kenneth II episode, and now I cannot rid my brain of the Everybody Loves Dunstan jingle. Mm. And not one bit of me cares. I think <laughs> I found my new ringtone, my morning alarm, and what could possibly be the winner for the next Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> oh, good point. Next year, 2017. I mean, inexplicably, everyone does love Dunstan, so maybe it's got a <laughs> chance. You can now actually download yes uh, rexad.wordpress.com um, Abby Carter at Abby Carter 384 on Twitter just listened to the episode on Malcolm III am I the only one who thought Margaret was far more interesting yes no I'm with you there she uh, was great that was his wife the one that became a saint brought all the culture and stuff yeah. uh, mm, she was great she's uh, sort of a Eleanor McAquitaine yeah. equivalent <laughs> And uh, at Paul underscore Jones underscore 1983 on Twitter said that uh, season three should be famous elephants. Edgar's, remember Edgar of Scotland, yeah. the elephant, Hannibal's crossing the Alps, yeah. Henry I dying from consumption, yeah. and Nelly. I, words right out of my mouth. <laughs> so thank you all very much for your messages via our various social media. Thank Please do much. continue to get in touch. It's always great to hear from you. But our next Scottish episode will be the son of William the lion finally alexander the second finally yeah till then goodbye from me goodbye